the red button. Thank you. Okay. Um, got several topics for you tonight. Should be exciting. I hope you get riled up. I'll do my best to make that happen. Mike, it's good to see you. God bless you. Yes, thank you. Um, why was I playing Christmas music? I mean, it seems out of place. You would think that with my Torah walk that I wouldn't be much into Christmas. And here it is, the middle of November. Why would I be playing Christmas music? Jesus redeemed it. Because Jesus redeemed it. He's the master of all things. And he's taken control of these. Yeah, he's big enough. Because I own handguns. Well, there it is. That's Which is true, yes. I wasn't playing away in a manger. I was playing your normal Christmas type hymns. You wanted to create an edge in the group. Oh, Holy Night. You wanted to create some tension. Tension. Well, everyone knows that is true. But why Christmas music and why now? Yes, sir. You were you were acknowledging the the benefits of the lyrics Good. In, this, in the music yes. without participating in spiritism by listening to it further along in December. Outstanding. Outstanding. Wait, wait, wait. Was this a rant? <coughs> was it a plant? What was that? <laughs> 30 days ago. Well, we actually, in our house, were playing Christmas music throughout what holiday? Sukkot. Well, doesn't make sense. Right? Because that's when he tabernacled with us. And isn't that what Christmas is all about? How does, how does the Gospel of John begin? But that the Word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled with us or among us. Outstanding. Yes, sir. This is just a segue for this year's edition of the Christmas quiz. Which we're going to talk about at the end of the Oh, class. yeah. And there he is. Awesome. There he is. Thank you. That's right. That's right. That's right. When there's a Okay. I'm passing out a um, snippet of an email that I sent out. I won't say to a naysayer. Thank you. But, but a gentleman currently participating in professional Christendom uh, that is questioning... Not exactly what we're doing, but how. So I'd like you to examine what you read here. Try and keep your comments to yourself. Again, this is my response, so be gentle. Do you leave the extras on the table? Do we have to figure out what the original questions are? No. <laughs> but before you read, would you, would you bless God with me? May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that a mishap not come about through us. And may we not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is to may that it is to whore, and not regarding something which is to whore that it is to may. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of Torah, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes now, that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen.
So for those in Poughkeepsie and parts south, <clears throat> I will read what the men are reading. A strict sect of God's people, all zealous for God's word and serious about their faith, came to the conclusion that those outside the faith should be kept at a distance. They were concerned about ritual defiling mixed with non-believers and not remaining separate from the people of the land or the um, Haaretz. They had missionaries, but the everyday believer actively avoided non-believers, keeping to themselves with regard to assembling, even fellowship over a meal, and carefully testing and scrutinizing others and their walk of faith. Over a short period of time, their actions and attitudes effectively nullified parts of the Word of God. Instead of being a conduit of grace to the people outside the faith, they had become a reservoir of piety putting great hurdles before men to have fellowship, nurturing, and training in the faith. Historically, we know these well-meaning zealous believers needed a serious jolt to their understanding from which we should take note. Some were corrected by the living Torah, that is Yeshua, personally. Some were given visions and even a voice from heaven to change their behavior and return to the Torah's instruction. Others needed to argue it out, examining the scriptures, but in all cases, their perspective had to change. Now, for those of you who have been here going on two years or longer, please demonstrate some self-control. For those of you who are fairly new and maybe uh, quizzical, who am I talking about? Is this in the Bible? What happened? And I want for the next 10 or 15 minutes for us to discuss who these guys might be. Is it in the Bible? And is there a historical Peace that we may be missing that we can discuss. I hear buzzing. Is it coming from the coming from the bowl? Is perfectly acceptable. You can, of course, keep your mobile device in your hand if it is turned to stun or silent. If you're using it in order to read the Word of God. Anybody? The Talmudim of Beit Shammai. I would, I would differ. I think we're going there for sure. So I think you're more into my second point rather than, or these generically. Generically, who would you say these are? Whoa, whoa. I heard someone cough. <coughs> it's Dave. <Steve. coughs> who was that? I didn't, I didn't cough. Who coughed on this side? No, no. The Prushim, sure. Or for the Gentiles among us, the, the Pharisees, right? Sure. Okay. So the Prushim, they, they seem to be zealous for the Torah. In fact, as we saw last week, the Prushim considered, by observing, they just considered Yeshua to be a part of their sect and therefore did several things. What did they do? They tested him. They were, they were like questioning, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, why are you doing that? That doesn't line up with what we do. Good. It's good. We, they followed him. They were, they were walking all over the place, even to the Galilee, cutting across fields and questioning with others that were there. They ate with him. They invited him to table fellowship. That's major, guys. Absolutely major. Many believed, and in fact, we know that two of them Buried. buried him. That's big. That's big. What, what, you know, one of my favorites was that they cared for him. 
He did. They cared enough to warn him about Herod's plan to kill him. Most people don't think about that one. That's big. Why would they do that if they thought he was a schmo? False prophet, yeah, you know, whatever, anything else. Good. The, the burying thing is really big because it meant they had to become unclean for Passover. That's exactly right. And they could not, they could not celebrate Passover yeah. at Passover. Yeah, for guys that are, are into the remain pure thing, for two of them, especially two wealthy men, right, who are always like top shelf, got it straight, to do that, it demonstrates a, a true belief. And it's extraordinary. So, here, I'm sorry? It's an amazing mitzvah. I mean, it is. It's, it's an amazing thing. And they're public characters. I mean, they, they, they didn't just, you know, risk, uh, you know... Private out, ridicule? Ri- yeah, ridicule from, from their own. They were, they were public characters. Everybody in Israel knew who these men were. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, we've got a major, I would say, love affair between the, the Prashim... And the master. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And you know the sad part, right? Of course, the, the visible church, those professing Christendom, all they want to do is slam the, the Pharisees. I mean, they were, they were bad guys, hypocrites. They're the ones who killed them. And they, they were terrible. They, the absolute epitome of Judaism. It is true. They really are the epitome of Judaism. But they see it in a negative light. So, anyway. Ironically, as far as the killing of Master part, if I recall correctly, I wonder, it appears that none of them participated. That's correct. That in fact, they, they walked out. Walk One out of the Gospels, it's clear. They realize, wait a minute, this isn't kosher. <laughs> I'm out of here. And they walked. So, yeah. The more politically corrupt Sadducees. Yes. If we're gonna If we're going to pick on a sect, yeah, I think the Sadducees would be the ones. That was God's grace. Yeah. The Romans killed him at the behest of the Sadducees on behalf of the people. I mean, what, exactly. do we say, what, do we, what do we say who killed him? My sin killed him. He chose. He chose it. So, it was... There's no question for us. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't anyone. But uh, it was our sin. Yeah, you want to back up either way. It just, yeah, it's, it's vile said. to me because it's, the Master said, I give it freely and nobody takes it from me. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Right. Not, not the Romans. Yeah, right? you're exactly right. If we look at the Greek, it's clear. It's true. The Romans put him on the cross at the behest of the Sadducees on behalf of the people. And even the corrupt high priest prophesied rightly, that it's better that one righteous man should die for the sake of all the people. And that's exactly what happened. But if we look at the Greek, it is clear. He gave up his spirit. He killed himself. He chose when he would give up the spirit. He chose when he would die. And he died for us. You're exactly correct. During last week's portion, sitting around the Shabbat table with the Uphams and um, it was a great opportunity to say what if Lot's wife hadn't looked back? What if she hadn't turned into that pillar of salt? Brownies that afternoon, for sure, yes. Because <laughs> the, great cook. You didn't know that? The sages postulate that, no, that if, 
the, the, they just postulate that if his wife was around, his daughters would not have yes. you know, tricked their father and, and tried to... Therefore, uh, we wouldn't have had the Moabites. Moabites therefore, we wouldn't have Ruth. Ruth yeah. you know, we and, wouldn't have the descendants of the, of the master. <laughs> Another good question is, well, you know, to all the naysayers and people who talk about, uh, well, the, the Jews killed Jesus and everything like that, what if Jesus hadn't died on the cross? Yeah. It's, it's just as it's just as much of a uh, a brain tickling question. It is. It is. Um, I would say that God would come up with some other Moabite origin in the case of Lot and his wife. Um, but I am absolutely confident, since we know that Messiah was born to die, it was going to happen. No question. So. You bet. Absolutely. So, um, the paragraph I wrote. Well, I mean, what do you think? Any any problems? Any questions? What is it? Um, you said their perspective had to change. Their perspective had to change. Which perspective am I? See, of, is, of which perspective well, am I speaking? Goes back to, I think maybe where Jonathan was. Why he said um, is that there were to lump them all together. Maybe maybe seems too broad a brush because. Well, wait for those listening afar. Who am I grouping together when I did that? It's not just the Pharisees now that I'm talking about that are that have this mindset. But who is it? Who is it? It's it's Beit Shemai forcing it upon Beit Hillel, and therefore the Sanhedrin, and then Greater Judaism. Sure. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees. I mean, who is it that would not go into the Praetorium to speak to Pilate? Was it a Pharisee? Who was it? It was a Sadducee. It was the high priest. He was like, no, 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 I can't go in there. Because I would become unclean for Passover. Is that true? No. No. It's ridiculous. It's to this point. It's true according to the... Exactly. So what had to change? The Pharisee's understanding of the halakha. Right? That's exactly right. This is sort of a question directed at anyone in, but from reading scripture, especially the apostolic writings and everything, it's it's become clear through all our external reading with and within, uh, within without the Bible and everything that there was a great deal of tension between these uh, the sects of the, the schools of Hillel and Shammai. What could bring us a better understanding? Like what? Passages or what books? What specifically would let's say that, that these two are 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 sort of warring with one another? You know, to the extent you know that we've gathered from modern scholarship and scripture and everything like that. Where's some just? I wait, I didn't hear the question. What would give us a better understanding of, of, of more of the, what was going on? Yes, the the rub, the the conflict, the the, the war between these. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. I would. I would say personally, the Talmud. There's actually a, a book on the shelf, of the Art Scroll Hanukkah book. Yeah. Does a pretty good job of giving the history of cool. both sects, and it's actually quite helpful. Okay. Well, let's talk about timing. Okay. So I'm I'm walking back to where the master is, right? So the master's on this side of me. What's on this side? That's where it's all happens. That's where it happens. So we've got two or three things happening on this side right before the master. 
I'm going to have all the time for him to come. Well, I would call it the fullness of time. Ah, you know. What happened right before he was born? The Maccabean revolt against the or the Seleucids, right? The Greeks, right? And we had the pairs, the Zagot, which which started off as kind of Pharisee and then were strong Sadducee for several generations and then went Pharisee. Yeah. And then the last generation of Pharisees, before the Master was born, we had that giant split between Beit Hillel, Hillel and, and Beit Shammai. Exactly. And that started right about here, guys. And you've got those pairs, there's a goat from the middle of this wall, from 500 before the master, all the way down. That, yeah. Right after Ezra. I mean, that's where the zoo goats start. So you've got pair after pair after pair. And if you look in the Talmud, I mean, they can tell you exactly, you know. Because what are we looking for? We're looking for the, the handing off of that oral law. From Moses, it went to Joshua. From Joshua, it went to, you know, and it goes on and on and on and on. And they can name every person it went down to. And they're named right down through that. It's the first part of Pirkei Exactly. So, you've got this rebellion. You've got this tremendous snatching away through the Maccabean revolt of the whole priesthood. The selling out to Rome. We've got the Hillel and Shemai <laughs> fight and, and an argument which results in the house of Hillel being invited to like the son-in-law or something like that of one of the Shemaiites where the Talmud says many Hillel of the house of Hillel went in, not many came out. It's a great way to win a vote. <laughs> Take out everybody else, right? Yeah. Right? So that's what you've got walking in. And of course, at that time, well, we haven't even talked about the Romans and Herod and the whole deal and his weirdness and, and whatnot right before that time. But a uh, couple, couple publications. One I think I may have mentioned last week, Jesus the Pharisee, mm. Harvey Falk. Heavily footnoted. Excellent. Yeah, good, good resource for understanding that dynamic. And then uh, I read this summer a, uh, a biography on Hillel. It's a um, really, really fascinating. Um, it's a book that you can get through uh, Orin Publications, U-R-I-N. Uh, you can go to their website and order it. Uh, uh, and that's, that's good because it contrasts the teachings of Hillel against the teachings of Shammai. And just their approach and their demeanor and everything was just, couldn't have been, I mean, they're pol- polar opposites, basically. Amen. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy for us because uh, seeing things through the prism of rabbinic Judaism, it's easy for us to kind of side with Hillel. That is pretty this easy. Whole thing. And, and I think that it, in most cases he's correct. But Yeshua oftentimes takes positions that are very much in line with Shammai. His view of Gentiles is very much in line with Shammai. Gentiles? Yes. I would argue that he, he plays both sides of the fence when it comes to Gentiles. Because he's he's willing. But I don't think at that time. I mean we could we could argue that his disciples uh, uh, expanded 
uh, glimmers, but in the text that we read, he sounds like Shammai. Hey, can you give me an example? Shammai didn't like, like Gentiles. Shammai is the guy with the builder's cubit who smacks the, the Gentile who wants to know about the Torah. He smacks him and sends him off. Give me an, give me an example. Yeah, the Syrophoenician woman. I have no part right? with dogs. Yeah. I mean, that I mean, sounds just like Shammai. Exactly. Yeah, yeah he's... When he follows us up, it's almost more like what Judaism does today with Gentiles. The tradition being, they come to you, I want to convert. No, you really don't want to convert. It's no, I really do want to convert. Yeah, go, go away. away. No, no, really, I do. No, you don't want it. Too yeah, hard. no, I really want to convert. Okay. It's going to cost you everything. You're probably going to die. Okay, you I, want I'll to do it. Fine. Yeah. So, in that sense, that's almost the response that Yeshua takes. With, <laughs> that's right, it's only three, right. The Syrophoenician woman is similar because when she challenges back and says, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps underneath the table, he says, go, your faith has made your daughter well. Yeah. So, in the same way, while Shammai may have been more rejectionist, Yeshua was simply playing hard to get, I would argue. He, he wanted to make sure that the person's uh, interest was genuine, and That's also awesome. to push them a little bit. So it is more like, I think, I, I, I would tend to think he's more kind of in the middle between the yeah, two. Yeah, I, I hope he's in the middle, um, but I, I tend to think his mission was extraordinarily clear. Yeah. And as Gentiles, we don't want to see that his mission was, and I'm quoting him, to the lost house of Israel. He didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. That's not why he was there. And we hate to hear that, but that's what he said. And I think his response to the Syrophoenician Roman is more along the lines of, darn it, I'm not here for that now. Now's not the time. But you gave a great answer, so okay. I think I, I put it there. I'm sorry? His trip to the gatherings of the Galilee is very interesting, where he heals the demoniac and then actually sends him off into the city. I remember correctly, that's not necessarily a Jewish part of town. Agreed. Agreed. Well, and, and, and I, would, uh, I would argue that he stated his mission was to the Washington House of Israel when he was here. Yes. And I don't see how that mission's changed. His mission is still only right. to the House of Israel. Right. But the good news is we can ourselves to the House of Israel. Amen. There's a, Amen. an indirect effect. Yes. To the Jew first, then the yeah, I, I, I can work with that. But I can go work back to your, to your letter here. Um, yes. I, I don't necessarily disagree with the words themselves. I would say, though, that unfortunately, because of our traditional approach to Pharisees and their stance on halakha, we are typically, unfortunately, I think, too critical of their piety, when in fact, Yeshua's main criticism was not that they were doing too much. His primary criticism was usually that they weren't doing enough of the right thing. So, like, a lot of their issues with Gentiles, for example... Um, that were problems were based off of a lack of full understanding of the scripture in some cases and in other cases also a lack of mercy and compassion which were two areas where Yeshua criticized them very strongly even when in regard to other Jews um, but when he's very clear to them that their piety was fine because when he criticizes them in the, most, in the strongest passage in the entire uh, gospel he actually tells them you tithe all these little spices that nobody says you have to tithe but you're forgetting these things. Yeah. He doesn't say, stop doing that legalism. He says, keep doing that. That's fine. And but do add this too. to it yeah. the bigger things. You weren't here for the Prushim class last week, right? Yeah, okay. So yeah, we're, we're, all, for, we're all for the Prushim. No question. Um, is there something... their stance. Absolutely. And, and we love their stance. But we recognize, and should recognize, that their stance on Gentiles was incorrect. Not of their own device. Yeah. It came 
down, quote-unquote, from on high. And they obediently followed their elders. One, one group broke off, and, and, and Menachem took 80, and, and some accounts say it was Hillel, yeah. took 80 of his disciples and left. Yeah. Uh, he, he, the issue. yeah, he seems to be, I mean, that's, that's right after the murder thing, right? right. Or right before the murder that's thing. After. Yeah, but I mean, we don't hear from him anymore. Whoever it is, whether and it's he's Hillel gone. or whether it's a... Yeah, I find it hard to believe it was Hillel, but... It's called Menachem. Yeah. So, here's a, here's a comforter who's taking off. So, either way. I have a yes, sir? What, what exactly do you mean by well-meaning zealous? Or zealous believers. Well-meaning zealous believers. Is it... Uh, I mean... Uh, I mean the Prushim were well-meaning zealous believers. Zealous to God. Okay, okay. They were they were well meaning to God. Okay. They they thought they were doing right. Okay, kind of like you know. Not right. Yeah, not, yeah, not biblical zealots. zealots. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, not not political zealots. Theological zealots. Okay. Yeah. I would say that you're in the top of the first sentence of the third paragraph. Over a short period of time, their actions and attitudes effectively nullified parts of the Word of God. I think that the wording there could change to indicate that it was not that God's Word was actually nullified, but that they were placing their man-made traditions above the actual Word of God. I think, I think, both, a, of us, I think both of us are quoting Matthew 15. I mean, right. that's what he said they did. Yes, but there's, there's, there's kind of a... It's a semantics issue. That, that's all I'm saying. I think, I think that by saying that they nullified the Word of God, it would mean that Okay, it's been nullified and, and then it's no longer applicable. I, I think that's kind of how it, it sounds the way it's written. I know exactly what you're, what you're trying to say. I know exactly what you're trying to say. It's just that I just a little Dude, gotcha, word, gotcha, word gotcha. Anybody else? Let me ask you this. When you read this, did you know it was the Pharisees? Okay. So many of you knew it was the Pharisees. If you didn't know it was the Pharisees, how come you didn't know? Tim, how come you didn't know? Did you know it was the Pharisees? You did know. Did you know? I did. Did you know? I thought. Who didn't know? You didn't know? (laughs) (laughs) Noob. You're allowed to not know. Okay. Good, good, good. All right. I had it down between the Pharisees. I thought the same thing. I was thinking exactly the same thing. You said that a couple people could get right between. Oh, that's good. That is good. That is good. All right. So, we got got two more for these men. We got one more for these men. Extras. One and two. Good. All right. I'd like to talk about now that I know how much time we have. Um, you can put that away. 
I'd like to talk about authority. And I'd like to know who's in charge. According to Pete, you are. Yeah, according to Pete, I am. Yeah. So, who's really in charge? We know that ultimately Hashem is. So, you know, take that out of the out of the mix. We clearly believe that there's nothing you can do to thwart to design the will of God. You can't. It's ridiculous. You're a creature, he's the creator. So, I want to talk about authority so that we understand who's in charge. We've got a lot of different opportunities and places. Um, how about in the home? Who's in charge? The father's in charge. The father slash husband. The father slash husband. Do you think that that's the way it normally is? In most no. homes? No. Genesis 3 tells us different. What does Genesis 3 teach us? The woman what? Tries to take the role. Her desire is for her husband. That's not sex, guys. Sorry. No. It should be, and it'd be great if it was, but, you know, what? You want me? <laughs> yeah. No, that's not it. The woman desires his place. Right? His position. And, and really, what is the problem in mainline Christianity and in most of the world today? The man is more than willing to give that role up. That's the bottom line. How about at work? Nobody's the boss. Okay. The authority that is uh, that is uh, practically uh, most present is in charge. So I've got a practical and a formal, formal yeah, authority like, structure. Examples like if if uh, if my immediate boss asks me to do something that's not improper. But I know that it's something that his boss wouldn't like. I don't go, no, no, I can't do that. I do what my boss tells me to do. Because you've got a practical perspective. But there's this formal hierarchy. So, you know, typically the chairman, president, CEO is the formal boss in charge of the company, right? Uh, but you better be able to get past the secretary if you want to even have a... You know, that's so who really, you know, really runs the show? Right? And that, I would say, is precisely what I want to talk about. That's a person of power. of position. There's authority, and then there's power. Who has the power? I would submit that the person with the power is number two. We see this throughout the scripture. 
Who is in charge of all of Egypt? Pharaoh. He is Pharaoh. Who's running the show? Who has the power? Joseph. Hashem is absolutely 100% in charge. Who's got the power? Moses. Four separate dynasties. Same guy, chief of staff, and here we one. Is the king in charge? Darius. All these other, Belteshazzar and all those guys? But Daniel's got the power throughout. We've got, uh, we've got a man who absolutely is enthralled with Joseph. He knows. He's seen. He's prospered because of Joseph. How in the world did Joseph end up in prison? Who had the power in the house? Potiphar's wife. And he's forced to put Joseph in the prison. Who's in charge of the prison? The head jailer guy, right? But who's running the place after a while and making it work? Joseph. The number two always has that power or can have that power. We need to recognize that. And we need to realize who is God? Hashem himself. Who is the creative cause, the effective agent of creation? Messiah, sure. The Mashiach, right? So, number two has the power. It's, it's something to take note of and be aware of. It's amazing, and it's, it's throughout. And I mean, I can go through uh, all the stuff. Abraham is in charge of his family. Who got Ishmael? Number two. Yeah. It's exactly the same. I, I, I fly an airplane. I'm in charge. But, uh, if, if my co-pilot Titular head. It's a position. Exactly. I would say that in the case of usually with businesses, and certainly in the house, um, the number two may wield practical power, but all of the responsibility. We're not talking. We're not talking about responsibility <laughs> at all. That's a good point you bring up. They are completely separate. They are completely separate. That's one reason separate. you know why the CEO makes so much money, even though they may not necessarily. He's got much the work, responsibility. It's because if things go down, it falls on him. Exactly right. Exactly. Well, that's why it should be. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good. Well, I mean, he'll be good. the first one to get booted. Yeah. Well, sure. one would think. Okay. So now here's here's some here's some detail of which you may not be aware. The zugot. Zugot is Hebrew for pairs. Pairs. So the last zugot were 
Who was the president of the Sanhedrin? I agree. Halal's in charge. Who does all the work? Halal was in charge. The vice president of the Sanhedrin was Shammai. That's why he's able to orchestrate all this stuff going on and ultimately they overthrow. Okay? It happens, guys, and we need to be aware of that. So, what is your relationship to authority? And how do you feel about authority? You feel a little uncomfortable? You chafing there? Or is that a good thing? Yes, sir? I think it's a good thing because as humans, we naturally function best within boundaries. Okay, so those boundaries need to be well-defined? Yes, which in the case of a home, uh, of a home, the husband and the father sets the boundaries in, in which the wife exercises the power. Good. Same thing with us. Hashem is ultimately in charge, but we exercise His will within the boundaries of the Torah. What happens when that's not there? Chaos. Chaos. Ajita. The rest of the world, you see what the rest of the world is turned into. Yeah. When there's a confusion about who's in charge, there's problems, right? It's, it's kind of intellectually dishonest to really have an issue with authority because you always have authority. There is always authority. That's way too logical. It is absolutely true, and I agree 100%. But most people don't even want to acknowledge that. Well, and then, and then you think about the difference in personality could probably influence to some degree, or at least the culture that we're raised in, because you'll see Gen Xers different from the later generation on how they respond to authority and the way authority interacts with those generations. Good, yeah. What's, what's the natural bent of man? Rebel against authority. I mean, that's, that's our natural thing, right? How do we know that? 6,000 years of history. It started all with... With Adam, right? Then we get one rule. One rule. It was food, by the way. Let's not forget that. The angels. Absolutely. It's just a natural thing. Okay. Um, I, I think we should recognize that the master spoke on this topic. What did he say? Okay, so he's number two. Because the authority has been given to him. Right? So that means the responsibility is still with Hashem, but he's been given the authority. So he's the power. Good. What else did he say? You can't serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and despise the other. You can't do two. What happens in most homes? Precisely. The kids are working against one another. They're playing. Uh, absolutely. Wise doctor. In walks mom and little Betty Boop. Betty Boop's not feeling too well. They both walk into the examining room. What's the first thing the doctor does? Mom, sit over there. She dutifully sits over there and sits down. 
What happens to the kid? All hope of rebellion is gone because he knows who's in charge. It's the doctor, not mom, because she just listened to what he said. Wise doctor. What did he do? Made it clear who's got the power. He demonstrated who's the authority in the room. Gentlemen, our role here is that we would be men of righteousness and we would understand how to walk out our faith. I want to help any way I can. Some of you, not married, recently married, long time married, whatever it may be, if you're not in charge, step up. You need to reassert that opportunity. If you've given it up for a while, it's a tough road to hoe. Just got to take that back. And as much as you don't take authority in your home, your wife will absorb whatever you don't want to take. And, and she's not really you know, to be criticized for doing it because somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And is she doing it simply to have the authority? I, I've, I don't know that I've met more than a handful of women in my life that are that way. Most of them are taking that authority because somebody's got to do it and they love their kids. So step up. We are without question, biblically, historically, the ones that should be in charge. You know, here's the sad part. Here's the tough noogies for you. Whether you're in charge or not, you're still the one who will be held accountable by God. So step up. And the way the King James put it is, quit you like men. That's right. In the NIV, it's act like a man. What does that imply? You're not. You're not, and (laughs) women act differently than men. Yes, we are different. Yes, sir. How would you guys explain it? Because I guess to the common perception now, oh, that was a different time. We don't do things that way anymore. Women have their rights and their responsibilities and their ability now. in their own. Or that we're equal now, and stuff like that. That is a bunch of crap. So we need to recognize and get it back into a biblical context, because there's some very false premises that start there. So who wants to jump in? Yes, sir. I have a question for Peter. Peter, when there's a discussion, uh, and you want to know if you're permitted to do something, do you go to your mother and she say, ask your father? Or do you go to your father and he say, 
He says, ask your mother. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, uh, no, I, I typically just do it. <laughs> Remember, man, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you're, I mean, obviously you're a young man, so it's like maybe younger, younger age. But it's a, it's a very telling thing. If you watch families operate, this, this helps me kind of see exactly the doctor perspective in a, in, a, in a family, what the doctor did is. When little children go to mommy and say, can I do such and such, and they say yes or no, off of that all the time. It's different than when they go to daddy and they say, you know, can I do such and such? They says, ask your mother. Mm. Men that mm. say, ask your mother, there's a problem there. Yeah. Uh, if you're not married, you need to write that down. I, I, it's I the other way around. My wife always tells my children, with anything they ask, ask your father. I'm constantly making decisions I don't know anything about. So I was like, you know something? I don't know anything about that. We need to ask your mother. And is there any but the point about? is... The point is that she is always reflecting that the decision's not made by me. I, I operate within the, the guidelines that are formed, but the decision's always made by someone else. Would it be wrong for the father to say, well, I need to discuss this with your mother first? No, so yeah. I do that all the time. Absolutely. I do that all the time. Absolutely. I, I don't necessarily have to do that all the time because um, my wife will tell my children, ask your father. If I don't know anything about it, I do know enough about it what concerns me. And then, as long as my wife's running schedules and it's an issue like that, it is fine by me. Go see with your mom if it'll right. work. Something like that. Because I don't have to do everything. I set standards. At least this is how I try to operate. Just set standards and then follow up. But I don't have to be involved. As long as it's decisions we've already gone through before. I, I mean, to... To help Pete, I mean, I think the answer here is I've delegated authority to my wife to make decisions to run this home. And when it's a decision about the home, my wife's going to do it. If it's beyond that, she's going to say, ask your dad. <laughs> the ultimate authority. Boom, boom, boom. If the household's on the same wavelength, the husband and wife are going to be following the same Absolutely. You shouldn't. That's what I, the wife isn't necessarily going to have to say, well, you need to ask your father if it's something you've already discussed. Your father and I have already decided that this is the way we're going to go. That's exactly right. Actually, with my wife, she often knows the answer. But she uh, plays yeah. the game. And she does it for the very reason the doctor did. It's, it's part of that reinforcing the fact that, that, that uh, there is a, an authority structure. And, you know, honestly, my kids will tell you, a lot of times I'm like, I'm clueless. Okay, well, let me, and, let me, and, let me talk to your mother. However, however, to be fair, there's times when my, when my kids look, would look at each other and go, in a discussion, that mom and dad, unbeknownst to them, have already made a decision together. And uh, the, the show was just a show, because, oh, wow, that's exactly what mom said. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. Shocker. Good. Somebody else. Just to follow up on Isaac's comment earlier about society today, I would say the society today has done a great disservice to women to say that women are equal now. Because the reality of the matter is, women's value was set in the garden when God said man and woman were both made in the image of God. And to argue that because a woman's role has somehow 
absorbed man's role makes them equal is a farce. The reality is each have separate and distinct responsibilities, but their value to God is the same. And I think that that is the key that we have to be remembering. When you're dealing with people from the world in particular, they might want to challenge you and say, well, why is your wife at home? Or, you know, do you think it's wrong for a woman to, you know, be in the workforce or whatever your, their point may be? Yes. Oh, yeah, sorry. Your stand, sorry. Stand, our stance should be back to saying, my faith doesn't denigrate women. My faith elevates them to Amen. be everything that God wants them to be. Amen. And every Friday night, I talk about how amazing she is. Do you yeah. do that? Yes. Yeah, so like, when was the last time you sang at shit? Right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> quite, quite frankly, quite frankly, the opposite would be in Islam, okay. and Ooh. in the complete integration of women. You're next, and you, then you. Go ahead. And, yeah, I just. It's gone. Okay, you're next. Uh, nice hat. Yeah, well, you, you stole a little bit of the thunder because using the word equal, you know, woman's not equal to man, man, you know, it's not an issue of, equal, of equality. It's Never was. Man, right. it's Never women. was. Women are capable <laughs> of doing most things men can do. And Sometimes better. Right. Often. So it's not an issue of, of equality or capability. It's an issue of God-given authority and responsibility. And... We see from the scripture and and show all very clearly, well, maybe not clearly in some people's mind, but clearly in my mind, in 1 Corinthians 11, lays out the pecking order. Amen. Yeah. Messiah is... No, it's Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5? No, uh, no, chapter 6. It's Ephesians chapter 6, right? No, the, no, the headship? Oh, the headship, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This same is deal, yeah. Corinthians 11. So, yeah. uh, head of the church... Uh, you know, man is the head of the is, is the head of the woman. You know, woman's over the kids, kids are over the dog, dog's over the cat, cat's over the mouse, and the mouse is over the cheese. And that's how it is. You know? <laughs> that must be. Always oh, with you till the cheese. <laughs> I, I, I think it was the message by the message by That's good. It's <laughs> Everything God has kind of designed the, the economy of the world to kind of run on that paradigm. Amen. And it runs the best on that paradigm. And if you try to you know, do something different, you're just... Something's going to happen. Right. Good. Yes? Yeah, I think uh, Joshua kind of brought out uh, an important point that I think is very important for us to understand. And that is, uh, again, and Greg kind of touched on it, the, the, uh, the idea of equality and the reason why I think have the feminist movement and all these different movements is because that uh, the women feel that, it, that it's an attack on their self-worth. It's not a matter of personal value uh, before God because we are all of the same value. God, you know, has no partiality. He's not a respecter of persons. Right. So we all have equal uh, worth or value in the eyes of Hashem. And the other thing that we need to understand is that husband and wife together collectively complete that image of God. Because he created the male and female. So I think that it's important Good. for us to understand it's not about uh, worth or value in the eyes of God, but it's about the roles that he's created that are complementary, that together uh, you know, uh, manifest the full-orbed image of, of God. I mean, I got you. Yes. I would say that to bounce off of Joshua's ideas also that to make something equal, which was never even intended to be so in the first place, we see a similar case with Gentiles who were converting. 
if they're to be tried to be uh, trying to become Jewish, then you know, and everybody who comes to the faith is is becoming Jewish, then it looks like everybody's going to become Jewish instead of there's there's not going to be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's but that has to be there. Different purposes, different roles, but <coughs> one in Messiah. Still different. Senator, hang on. Yes. I think the word value is is key in going back to your original question of like how do you communicate that to somebody when because I, I have had these conversations before and, and value I think is key because society has assigned a lower value to the role of a housewife and a caretaker of children or a homemaker has, or a homemaker to somebody that's working in the workforce when in fact it's the exact opposite because one is a man-made role some company you know secretary or whatever and one is a god-made role the, the role of a woman in the house is uh, has been established by god so i would always tell people like that is so much higher of a value. In fact, you're not lowering their status by having them be in the home at all. You're you're raising their status, and I think you're it's trusting them exactly. And it's the responsibility of men also to recognize that that it's it's not giving praise and everything like friends would to a woman who's working. Like, oh, congratulations on that promotion. It's the exact same thing in the household. It's like, you know, honey, thank you so much for cleaning everything. You know, like just constantly praising her for the work that she's doing in the home so as not to devalue it. Thank you for entrusting her. I would say, enabling her. You're not going to talk to a woman who has literally raised children and seen a godly seed rise up and and provide multi-generational faithfulness. That kind of self-worth and satisfaction can never come from the marketplace. Cannot. Yes? And just to pick up on the notion of value, in our culture, in particularly Western culture, everybody thinks of value in terms of, you know, what's your net worth? What's your, you know, what's what are you earning? What do you make? Yeah. Right? Um, and I know, because I've actually thought through this, you know, just for, just for kicks, uh, what a bean counter! Holy cow! Go buy the services your wife are providing. That my wife provides on a daily basis in the house. You know, um, it's well, it's it's six figures a year, easy, easy, very easy. Yeah, you got a deal, buddy. And you married up too. We all know that. Of course, I did too. It's, it's, uh, we always have to be careful that, that even though we may, we may think that that's a recognized view, mm-hmm. uh, there is a thing called red-green alliance in America, in, in the world, where essentially Islam and, and left-leaning Marxists are in fact in the same camp, oddly enough. Sure. And, and it's the Marxists, actually, the left-leaning Americans and Europeans that actually think Islam is very positive towards women. And it's Judaism and Christianity that puts women down. Uh, Mavis Leno uh, recently had a thing. She's she's worked with. Did he do Saturday Night Live? Not Jay Leno. Oh, it's Jay Leno. Jay Leno's wife. She um, works with 
uh, relief organizations in Afghanistan, and she said, I would much rather have women under Islam than under Judaism. Hmm. It's well, like, what planet are you uh, from? That's amazing. <laughs> that's, yeah, only chop off their hands, but it's okay, they're better off. <laughs> and they get 70 of us when they kill somebody and blow well, themselves up. But just as far as going back to some of the points that Ken was making about um, women's feeling value and wanting to try and increase their self-worth through the workforce or whatever, I think that part of the reason why women desired that, besides the fall, is also a failure in us as men to yes. love and respect them the yes. way God called us to. Because one of the things we see in Ephesians, it's very clear, the woman is supposed to respect the husband, and I think that as men we all realize how important it is to feel respected. But, that, but your wife, and you know, in some of our cases future wives, they need to feel loved. They need to be... Um, I, I disagree. I disagree. They don't need to feel loved. They need to be loved. They need to be loved. That's, so, there's a big difference. Sure. Because if they are Sometimes loved, they feel they'll loved. feel it. Yeah. Sometimes they don't feel so it. Yeah. The point being that, the point being that um, part, of that, uh, part of the responsibility in this role setup that we have is not only to be in charge, but also to be in charge in love. And so there is, there is a sense of compassion and mercy that does have to fit into that, as well as... Sometimes tough love, but regardless, it all has to be within the framework of love. We are uh, benevolent dictators, but we shouldn't turn into tyrants. Amen. Good. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd make a few quick points. You started off by saying that women generally don't, you haven't met a lot of women that are real strong-minded, that generally they're filling in the weaknesses of the husband is the main issue. And yes, so, sir. To answer Isaac's point, there is some of that world saying women's role has changed, but more I've seen women trying, as the wife, trying to fill in the weaknesses of their husband. Yes. So that'd be the first thing. I fill that gap. The one thing that I thought about this and seen it some of my own life, but traveling husbands that are gone significant portions of the week have a real issue how they can, you know, it, it's difficult to to, to um, it, it can work, but it's difficult, and I've seen in my own example, it if is. I'm traveling a lot, it's difficult with children why is age. Why is it difficult? Because you're, you're, you're not present, and they have to assume, they're going to step up. Because somebody's got to step somebody up. Somebody has to. When I, when I deploy for you know months at a time, it's friction when I return, because I'm taking back over this... The roles. Back on the roles. Yeah. And it's not that she you know, is reluctant to get rid of responsibility. It is routine and practice for so long. Yeah. It feels foreign. So it can be There's a routine you should go through. It's, and you've probably done it. We have routine. You know, unpacking tradition establishes, reestablishes authority. Dad comes in, no one says a word to him. He greets him at the door, that's all. Don't give me your problems, I don't want to hear them. You know. Once I'm unpacked, I'm in charge of you. So I go in and I'm And then everybody goes, okay, dad's back. True? All your life. <laughs> something, you leave the home before travel, you come back, and all of a sudden everything's so much noisier. You're just like, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly you know, like, it's like what's everybody yelling for? And you think, well, I need rest for travel, but it's just you haven't dealt with it. But there is more of that role where the children play off the parents more. You bet. When the husband's coming back, even after being away three or four days. But the other thing that I thought I'd mention is, and, and is late marrying. I, I really respect the the Jewish tradition that 
you know, and the mindset, do it early, and I would support that. I don't think you run into too many problems if you marry late. Now you've got a, a woman who has tried on her own to fill a lot of roles, income, doing things at the home, so marrying late is a it's an issue that, that can cause problems. And the one last thing is, my wife, and I'm sure any of the older older um, fathers here would say, their wife would say, life is boring after the kids. I mean, they once they have their first child and are in the home caring for that child, my wife would say there's nothing that I could ever do that would be more satisfying more important and more gratifying, you know, exactly. gratifying, I mean, it's, everything else is boring after children. Yeah. You know, you could put her in any position, it would She's not hire call. Which one is great kids? Uh, to what Greg B. and uh, Joshua said, um, I wanted to say that we need to know as men uh, how to honor our wives. And going back to the Genesis 3 passage, I've always understood that in some of my personal devotion and studies of late. Hasidism and Kutei uh, Maharam. Uh, it talks about that, that, it interprets that passage in light of the woman's need for honor when it says the desire will be uh, for the man, that she's looking to the man for that affirmation. So that in the fall, when she sinned, when the woman sinned, when Chava sinned, she sinned because she doubted Hashem's love. She doubted his goodness. Uh, whereas when the man sinned, he was, he was a willful rebel. rebel. So God's sole correction for the man was humility because man was seeking honor above Hashem. And God's sole correction for the woman uh, is for the man through his humility to give her assurance of love and honor. I like so it. So it's, it's the way God's works. It's just... He's a genius. I was just thinking recently of the irony because it, on the one hand, the passage from Ephesians that it, it's essentially like Paul encourages us to give the opposite of what our, is our nature. You know, men naturally aren't very good at loving, so he says to love them. Women aren't naturally good at respecting, so he says to respect them. And I think the same is true for roles, because it, even from what happened with Eve, she made a decision on her own. It's almost like a natural state of a woman is to make the decisions, is to want to fill that. And then for us, it just seems like the way that men are tending nowadays is more towards slothfulness and just not having to do very much. I've, I've heard a lot recently the term stay-at-home dad, which is really just more of like a, a laziness term. And it's just, it's amazing how it's the irony there because you have something that we know from Scripture and then what's actually happening in the world. Amen. Good. Final comments. I would bring, gentlemen, to your attention that tradition and routine in your home are your friend. Traditions for the holidays, the Moedim, are something sweet and wonderful that your children will take into their homes. They will look forward to it. They will want to build upon it. And it is a calming and teaching thing. Routine is your salvation. If you can establish a routine, and even if you're not there, 
for a time. The routine can go on. It's almost like you're spinning the plates. Even if you're not there for a second, you're spinning some other plate. The plate still <coughs> continues to spin because of the routine. And I would suggest from experience that routines are excellent. Good routines. Bad routines will snap you in the butt. Write that down too. <laughs> what do you say to someone who says, well, I'm just a free spirit by nature. I, I can't handle all this structure and all this discipline and stuff. It just, it, it would make me feel confined and it sure. goes against my being. Yeah, I would say you're naturally rebellious like every other man on the planet. What's your point? I'm talking about a, a woman. I would say the same oh. thing. <laughs> you're naturally rebellious like every other woman. <laughs> What's, what's your point? You know, you have not experienced the love of a man. And I'm not talking about sex in any way. I'm talking about when you open a door for a woman and she looks at you all surprised and says, well, thank you. You've just raised her up. Self-esteem, your view of her, everything just went up. I love going to the mall because they got those two sets of doors. You can't get in the mall without going through two sets of doors. You got the door there, and the old lady's coming, you know, and I hold the door. Alan's already gone through, right? So now Alan already knows to stop at the second door because Alan's not going to reach for that door. Why not? Because I've told her not to reach for the door. Sweetie, I'll get the door. Even if she's got to wait for the old lady to come through the first door, my wife's going to wait at the second door. And I'm going to usher the old lady through, and then I'm going to open up the door for the old lady to go through so that I've got the last opportunity with my wife. It happens all the time, guys. I can't wait to get to the exit. It's so cool. Because invariably, there's somebody there. Hey, my wife and I are walking arm in arm. And we go, you know, it's right past the underwear section. You know, I say, yeah, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the door. Yeah, like this That's right. You know, no, it's the men's underwear. It's great. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about anything. So, you know, we're walking there. And then I see there's, you know, this, this gal is coming right past us. You know, and I, Alan knows. She just drops her arm because she knows. I'm going to trot a little bit ahead and say, I got it, ma'am. And I'm going to open up that door for her. Now, of course, I've left my wife behind. So I've got to hold that door open a little longer for my wife to get through. And it's always interesting. Is Susie Sweetcakes going to wait at the second door? Or is she just going to go through? And invariably, she's just going to go through. But sometimes, if she's my age or older, she may actually pause, I think, remembering from days gone by, when men were chivalrous, when we knew to stand up when a woman comes in the room. And she kind of looks sort of a little bit half-hesitatingly over her shoulder and sees that I'm heading as fast as I can in there. 
And I'll say, I got it. And I hold that door for her. And I tell you men, invariably, she'll go halfway through that door, turn her head and look at you and say, thank you. I really appreciate it. Why? Because you just demonstrated to her that you know that God her in His image. And you want to elevate that and acknowledge it. There's no more beautiful thing on this planet, gentlemen. And you know what makes it go away? Stupid guys like us. We're automatic doors. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know I'm a master at the automatic door. I run up there, smack that button. I got it. <laughs> I'll take every opportunity. Or yes, step, sir. Or step on the, uh, the That's right, the yes. Plate. That's yes. For those who in the future would consider to wear a keeper and there's ETI out in public, do not do it unless you can demonstrate and practice those very exact mannerisms you're talking about. It's very difficult. Amen. Amen. And don't shake your hand while you're doing That's right. No. Yes, sir. Just one real quick opportunity to praise my own father and degree. Um, one of the things I would say as a son that has actually been very influential in not only um, increasing my respect for my mother, but also teaching me much about what it means to respect the wife. I have watched many times that my dad will praise my mother in front of us, make positive comments about her. You know, he'd come down to the dinner table and say, I married the prettiest woman in the world. You know, oftentimes I hear something along those lines. So I just say that as a son, I've watched and didn't need to have a lesson on it, I could see it. And I think that, um, you know, for those of us, myself, hopefully, who are willing to start to share this in the future, having a wife of my own, um, say that about my own home. Because I think that not only does it boost the wife's esteem, her honor, her self-worth, her value, but it also um, serves as a phenomenal example. And it not only sets an example for the future, but it's just a tone in the home. Amen. I'm not going to pick on my mom, because I know that my dad's got her back. Amen. We're going to close with that because we're going to pick up with that point when we come back. And I want you to know that it's not that Joshua didn't need a lesson. He got a lesson. And that's your job. Let's take a break.